Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. I've spent the last couple of days watching your videos, and I loved the analogy you had of the credit card statement and how in the old covenant, they just paid the bill, the minimum payment, minimum payment, and they were never going to be able to pay the full amount, but Jesus paid the full amount. So I'm going to use that again. <laughs> it was amazing. Love that. And um, I love that Pastor Tom mentioned about the sounds of Costa Rica because I've made friends. I made some friends there and um, connected with them over Facebook, and we're sending messages to each other over Facebook. One, her name was Carmen. And so when she sends the message, I can hear the crickets. And I'm like, oh, the sounds of Costa Rica. She lives on a mountain there, and I just love that. So I'm practicing my Spanish and still trying to learn and grow. So tonight, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. And this is nuts and bolts discipleship. Um, This is not a message that's going to like rend your heart and you're going to be in tears and you're going to be a completely different person when you leave. God can certainly do that. But this is a message that builds. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is laying a foundation about how the new covenant is better than the old, how everything Jesus did is better. And it kind of culminates, at least for me, in chapter 10, like I could probably spend a month teaching chapter 10 and I would never exhaust the treasures there. So this is nuts and bolts that's building towards chapter 10. So the, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is way better. And we've seen he's a better priest. He's a priest according to the line of Melchizedek. He's not like the priest of Aaron, but one that lives forever according to um, the order of Melchizedek. We have a better covenant. That was Hebrews chapter 8, which Bishop spoke about last week. And I knew that Bishop and I were on the same page when he sent me this chart he had made about the better covenant. And I was like, oh, that is my heart. And so tonight I'm going to go over my... The, the way that I look at this, um, y'all know I like those five W's and an H. So I'm going to just include that as we review. Um, Better Covenant, we're going to learn tonight, So we're, and we're going to go back and forth, and I confused myself in my notes. Which do I do first? But there is an earthly tabernacle that was built, and it was later the temple. But the pattern was from God of what's actually in heaven. And that is a stretch for our brains, but we're going to look at that tonight. The things that we see on earth are just a copy and a shadow of what is actually in heaven. And you're going to go home with that fact, and we're going to go through that. And if I have time, I'll also include how Jesus is represented in every part of the tabernacle. I don't know if we'll have time to cover that. You will notice tonight that you do have a handout but I do not have slides. So, um, yeah. No, you stay seated. Thank you, Jan. Uh huh. There should be in the lobby. Um, so I don't have slides tonight. It just I'm still recovering from Costa Rica. I took a three-hour nap today. <laughs> the slides just weren't going to happen. But you've got a great handout. So Jesus, we're going to see, especially chapter 9 and 10, he was a better sacrifice. Those Old sacrifices could never cleanse conscience. 
And we're going to talk about tonight the better sacrifice. He was a better offering. The new covenant is based on better promises. I think that was in chapter 8 that Bishop covered last week. So the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is about access to God. Access to God. So in the Garden of Eden, they had complete access to God. When they sinned, they became sinful, and God is holy. That word means set apart, consecrated. He's holy. He's pure. They lost access. So when God gave the law, he was creating a way for the people to come to him. But what we're going to see when we talk about the tabernacle is it was not for everyone to come to him. Are we good with handouts? And I love how Bishop included last week how even with Moses, they didn't want that face-to-face experience with Moses because God was scary. And then they didn't want God to be their king. They asked for a king. I love that building that he did to show us that what Jesus did made everything perfect. They lost access to God. Only the line of Aaron could go into God's presence and only once a year. But now we have complete access. And I teach this message in Hebrews because so many people still think that their past, they're still dirty and they're still sinful and they're still shameful and guilty and they won't go straight into God's presence. And if anybody has a past, I do. It's, you know, it's past, but I can walk right into God's presence without shame and guilt and fear because of Jesus and my understanding that I gained reading Hebrews 9 and 10. So, it changed my life. We have access. So, by way of review, our favorite verses about this access were mine, um, Hebrews 4, 16. And we're going to be all over the Bible tonight. I think I have every reference on your handout and some of the verses So we won't be turning to everything. But if you want to, open up to Hebrews 4. We'll just start there. I can almost, I can't quite say it from memory. One thing that, um, the last time when I talked in, I can't, gosh, what was our topic? Oh, I was, anytime I talk about things in the Old Testament, like I've studied the books of um, Paul in depth, like word for word. I could stand confidently and teach that. But sometimes when I'm teaching things from the Old Testament and I haven't studied it in depth, like I get a little nervous because I like control and that means I don't have the answer to every question. But I love how Bishop took the topic of baptisms, took the question the comment, went home, did the research. So I don't have the answers to all the questions. Brian said, though, on this topic, I probably know more than everybody at the room in the room at this moment. <laughs> so <laughs> that gave me some confidence. But I'm not an expert, but I've got the references. And if there are things you don't know, I'm learning that it's okay that I'm not like 125% prepared. I can go and do the research. So... Um, I liked that that Brian said. And at one point, I probably knew a lot about it, but once I start cramming more information in my brain, the old, it just goes somewhere. Hebrews 4, 14. It's a common problem. Therefore, 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, remember that's encouragement, that's an exhortation, let us hold fast our confession. And he tells us why. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So we've talked about how Jesus has a better compassion because he knows what it's like to get angry and have to hold your tongue. He knows what it's like to be tempted because he was tempted by the enemy. He knows all of these things. He has a superior compassion and a superior sympathy because he understands Verse 16, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Tonight I was praying, Lord, I need your grace. I have my niece, Lindsay, with me. I drove to Charlotte on Sunday and came back Monday, and we've been doing school and permit, and we've been go, go, go. And so I put my face on the floor and said, God, I know I haven't prayed <laughs> But I need your help. I need your grace. I need your help. And he's always faithful. It's like, God, you know my heart. But he knows what we've been doing. We've been a little busy. So um, grace. We may receive grace. I went knowing I didn't deserve grace. But as I thought about it, I've never deserved anything. And all I've received is grace, which is a free gift. I've never deserved grace more than I deserved grace tonight. I've never deserved it. But because of Christ and I'm his daughter, he gives it to me because he loves me. And that encouraged me. Hebrews, so let's jump ahead to Hebrews 10, um, starting with verse 19. I'm just trying to talk a little about this confidence. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there it is, let us draw near with a sincere heart. You're going to see that over and over in the book of Hebrews. God wants us to draw near when we need help. When we need mercy, when we need grace, when we are in need, that's when we come and we receive grace. That means we don't deserve it, but we receive it. It's a free gift. So um, let's look at that chart briefly about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because as I said, this builds. So the what is the approach or how you draw near to God in the Old Covenant, it was the tabernacle, later the temple. In the New Covenant, it's in heaven because we are seated in heaven. We're seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, Ephesians 2. We're citizens of heaven. I think that's Philippians 3. So right now, if I just shut my eyes and say, God, I know I haven't told you lately, but you know I love you. He hears that in heaven. And Jesus is my intercessor saying, Lord, have mercy on that woman because you know she needs it. Okay? He's the intercessor. He's right there. He's right there interceding for us. So when, when can we approach God? In the old covenant, once a year. Just once a year. The new covenant, anytime. 
The who. Who could approach God? Only the high priest. And that was even after they had to make sacrifices for themselves for their own sin. And if they didn't get it right, they got zapped. It was complicated. That's a scary thing. For us, we, can, we don't have to get it right before we come. I could come and say, God, you know I haven't talked to you much today, but I need your help. There's grace. There's help. He's faithful. It's not my first time in this position, but I do know that if I don't humble myself and I show up, this class ain't going to go well. I've learned that from experiences. After you prepare the materials, then you prepare your heart. Then you prepare your heart. How under the old covenant with the blood of animals? How in the new covenant with Jesus' blood? How do we get that? We surrender our lives to him and we say, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. Why? It's the same in both because God wants fellowship with holy humans. Now, he can't have fellowship with sinful humans because he's holy. So he wants the humans to be holy, to be cleansed. That's what Jesus did. He made us holy. God wants fellowship with us. That's why he's given us access into his presence. He wants to spend time with us. That's the whole message. Old covenant, limited access to God. New covenant, direct access to God. That's your five W's and an H. I think, did I get them right? One, two, three. Yes, for the old and the new covenant. I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about how to study your Bible, and I usually include some tips. Hey, Christine in the back. Um, I include some tips about this when I teach because as much as I enjoy teaching the Bible, I enjoy teaching how to study the Bible. And this is a book by Kay Arthur, um, David Arthur, and Pete DeLacy. And this teaches the inductive approach on how to study your Bible, which really means you study, you determine for yourself what you think it means before you go and read what a man says it means. Because as you consult commentaries or read footnotes, there's a lot of different opinions. But you study for yourself. And the five W's and an H is one way it tells you to question the text. Um, A shout-out to my 17-year-old Canadian friend, Aislinn, who's watching She asked me a few days ago, because I told her there's a difference between reading the Bible, because she had done a lot of reading, and studying the Bible. So a few days later, she wrote me a question. How do you study the Bible? One way is you ask those questions of the text. Who is this about? What are they doing? Where are they? When is this? Why and how? And so in my Bible, I mark, you know, I mark all the words that say for this reason, so that, all the words that tell me why. If it says therefore, that's telling me, you know, there's a big summary. So there are ways to study your Bible, and you can break the verses down into the five W's and an H. And then you can say, you can, it just makes it clearer. It just breaks it down. That's one way to study. I'm going to talk about a few more. As we go through, Wearsby says, the Wearsby commentary, Warren Wearsby, he says Hebrews 9 presents a detailed contrast between the old covenant sanctuary, that was the tabernacle, later the temple, and the new covenant heavenly sanctuary where Jesus Christ now ministers. 
So we've been saying that this is all about Jesus is better. So Wearsby says, this contrast makes it clear that the new covenant sanctuary is superior. So this heavenly sanctuary is far better than the earthly one. So let's talk about the tabernacle. Um, Daniel, can you put the diagram up there? And you should also have this in a handout. I can't remember the source of the diagram, um, but I found it on the internet. So I'll just, I probably, I just printed it. <laughs> Daniel, if you, I know you're probably working on it. He's trying, but you should have it. So we're going to talk about the tabernacle. I did bring a meter stick. I'm not going to hit anyone with it. Although, Lindsay, if you fall asleep, I'll just tap you on your head. <laughs> yeah. She said I could throw something at her. So, a cubit is approximately 18 inches. This is 36. If I do my math correctly, this is two cubits. So, as I read things and it says, how many cubits? This is two. Dos cubitos. Two cubits. All right? I don't want to forget that. That's a good meter stick. Okay. So turn with me to Exodus 25. This is where God gives some directions to Moses about how to construct the tabernacle. We're going to start with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So we're going to ask some questions from that, the five, and you don't always find the five, w, five W's and an H in every verse, but some of them you do. But let's look at this. What were they to do? He says, construct a sanctuary. Where would the materials come from? A contribution from every man whose heart moves him. I love this because I've been talking with someone about tithing. And I share with them the New Testament scripture where Jesus, I believe, is talking to the Pharisees and they tithe the dill and the mint and et cetera. Um, so tithing is discussed in the New Testament, but this person was saying, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace, we don't have to do what the Old Testament said. And I said to him, you know, I don't tithe because I have to, I tithe because I want to. I want to. That is why I tithe. I don't have to, but I choose to. I want to. And that's what he's saying from every man whose heart moves him. Now, we could do the whole teaching. It, I believe it's obedience, but I want to. I told him, you don't have to, but I want to. From every man whose heart moves him. How did they know what to construct? He said, according to the pattern that God would show them. Why? It's always this, that God may dwell with them. It's always going to be that, that God may dwell with them. Bishop could talk about faith forever, and I could forever talk about God wants to dwell with you. There's grace for your struggles. There's grace for your sin. There's a 
throne of grace, come boldly. He wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with you. Why? That God may dwell among them. That God may dwell among them. He says that. Verse 8, that I may dwell among them. Why? Why construct the tabernacle? That I may dwell among them. It was a picture of God's presence to them. It was a, they had seen, you know, the, the cloud leading them. They had seen the cloud on the mountain. But God gave them a tangible thing to see that in this place, God's presence is there. It had to be made holy because he's holy. He can only be where it's holy. But they could see God wants to tabernacle, to tent, to dwell with us. I think tabernacle means like to live in tents. He wanted to dwell. Okay. So, as I said, these things are just a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. Hebrews 8, um, 4b through 5a says, there are those who offer the things according to the law who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Daniel, are you able to pull up the video now? Okay, thank you. This is a video that my New Testament professor had us watch as we prepared to study Hebrews. And it's about, it's an analogy by the Greek philosopher Plato about a cave. And it's about the things that we see that we think are real that aren't. Whenever you're ready. There we go. What is reality? Knowledge. The meaning of life. Big topics you might tackle figuratively. Explaining existence as a journey down a road or across an ocean. A climb. A war. A book, a thread, a game, a window of opportunity, or an all-too-short-lived flicker of flame. 2,400 years ago, one of history's most famous thinkers said life is like being chained up in a cave forced to watch shadows flitting across a stone wall. Pretty cheery, right? That's actually what Plato suggested in his Allegory of the Cave, found in Book 7 of The Republic in which the Greek philosopher envisioned the ideal society by examining concepts like justice, truth, and beauty. In the allegory, a group of prisoners have been confined in a cavern since birth with no knowledge of the outside world. They are chained facing a wall, unable to turn their heads, while a fire behind them gives off a faint light. Occasionally, people pass by the fire carrying figures of animals and other objects that cast shadows on the wall. The prisoners name and classify these illusions, believing they're perceiving actual entities. Suddenly, one prisoner is freed and brought outside for the first time. The sunlight hurts his eyes, and he finds the new environment disorienting. When told that the things around him are real, while the shadows were mere reflections, he cannot believe it. The shadows appeared much clearer to him, but gradually his eyes adjust until he can look at reflections in the water, at objects directly, and finally at the sun, mm. whose light is the ultimate source of everything he has seen. The prisoner returns to the cave to share his discovery, but he is no longer used to the darkness and has a hard time seeing the shadows on the wall. The other prisoners think the journey has made him stupid and blind and violently resist any attempts to free them. Plato introduces this passage 
as an analogy of what it's like to be a philosopher, trying to educate the public. Most people are not just comfortable in their ignorance, but hostile to anyone who points it out. In fact, the real-life Socrates was sentenced to death by the Athenian government for disrupting the social order, and his student Plato spends much of the Republic disparaging Athenian democracy, while promoting rule by philosopher kings. With the cave parable, Plato may be arguing that the masses are too stubborn and ignorant to govern themselves. But the allegory has captured imaginations for 2,400 years because it can be read in far more ways. Importantly, the allegory is connected to the theory of forms developed in Plato's other dialogues, which holds that, like the shadows on the wall, things in the physical world are flawed reflections of ideal forms, such as roundness or beauty. In this way, the cave leads to many fundamental questions, including the origin of knowledge, the problem of representation, and the nature of reality itself. For theologians, the ideal forms exist in the mind of a creator. For philosophers of language viewing the forms as linguistic concepts, the theory illustrates the problem of grouping concrete things under abstract now, terms. So do you see how the things that we see on the earth, the physical tabernacle that they were to build, they were just a shadow, a copy of the heavenly things. Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? The whole book of Hebrews is, is this. It's that the things that we see are just copies and shadows of what actually takes place in heaven and what is in heaven a couple references, um, Colossians 2, 16 to 17. These are references to copies and shadows. Um, Paul writes, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And we'll see with Hebrews 10, 1 next week, it says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the, thing, the, the things that they were doing in the Old Testament, they were just copies and shadows of the perfect that would come in Jesus. So let's talk about the heavenly tabernacle. We're going to start with Hebrews 8, a couple references there, and then we'll jump to Hebrews 9. Hebrews 8, 1 is where we'll start. That's in Scripture. Yes, that's in Scripture. Um, Hebrews 10, 1, yeah, Colossians 2, 16, and Hebrews 8, 4 to 5. He says... The, those who offer gifts serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All right, Hebrews 8, 1, we're going to do 1 to 2 and then 4 to 5. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And Bishop pointed out last week that's the place of authority the right hand, and that we have that same authority. He's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, 
not man. Now, if he were if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, here's that verse again, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 9, and we'll start with verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So what I'm saying is a better tabernacle, a superior tabernacle. I'm not making it up. It right there says greater, not just greater, but greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The phrase that changed my life so much was this once for all, because I, if I would highlight it in green, and all through Hebrews 9 and 10, you just see once for all, once, once for all time, once for Jesus' sacrifice was once, and it was enough. For all your past sin, for the driver you cussed at today, and for all the sin in your future, it was enough. Once for all. He paid for it all. So I made a short list about, from these two passages about this heavenly tabernacle. I'm just going to throw a few out. Um, Hebrews, let me make sure I'm in the right place. Yeah. Hebrews 8.1. The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Can you imagine God pitching a tabernacle? The Lord pitched, not man. Um, Hebrews 9:11, greater and more perfect. Verse 11, not made with hands. Verse 11, not of this creation. And then verse 12 mentions the holy place. So, let's first look at this earthly tabernacle. And that's covered in Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. It describes it. And I know a lot of this you've heard taught before, so some of the things we're not going to spend a lot of time on, the references are there. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, so this section describes the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And we're going to look into the scriptures to learn a little more about it. And these things also would apply to the temple. If I get that right, everywhere I've seen, they're the same things, same principles apply to both. So the tabernacle was separated into three areas. Daniel, can you... Can you put the graphic in the center? I don't know if you can do that. The, the diagram in the center. And then you could put the verses on the others. I'm making him work hard tonight. 
I'm high maintenance, right, honey? Yeah, honey just smiles. Yeah, I'm just a little high maintenance. Just a little. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I need to move on. It was separated into three areas, okay? There's the outer court, and then there's the holy place, and then, this can get a little confusing, there's the most holy place, which is also called the holy of holies, okay? Three parts, outer court, holy place, holy of holies. That's the terminology I will usually use. And when you hear talk about the, the priest, the priests were from the line of Levi. <laughs> I got that right. And so the priest could go into the holy place where they would go in and minister. Am I getting it right? Thank you. I'm getting it right. They could go in and minister, but only the high priest, which came from the line of Aaron, could go into the most holy place. Okay? So the priests and Levites ministered in the outer court as they offered sacrifices for sin and guilt and other sacrifices. But that holy place, oh, I just messed it up. Okay, so only the Aaronic priests could enter the holy place. So the Levites could be on the outside and the outer, and the Aaronic priests could go into the holy place and the most holy place. It was set apart. So what does it mean that it was holy? means it was set apart. Only those who had prepared themselves, made offerings for themselves, purified themselves, gone through a ritual, could go in to the holy place. Holy means set apart. So in the outer court, there was a gate. There we go. Thank you. A gate. The gate always faced east. So where, let me think. I get turned around. That would be that way, right? East is that way. It always faced east. In the outer courtyard, you had an altar where they made sacrifices or burnt offerings. And then you had this bronze laver. It was a, it was a basin where the priest would wash with water, again, making themselves pure to be set apart in order to enter the holy place. So in the holy place... The priests would enter daily. There were things they had to do in there every day. This was a quote, I think, gotquestions.org, I think is what I was using. Um, I, I do a lot of research, and I love the way some people phrase things. But again, as I was saying before, he says, God gave the Israelites an object that would help them sense his presence among them, the tabernacle, the portable, which served as a portable temple, which was later replaced by the grand temple. And, um, and the things function in the same way, but a place where they could sense his presence. So let's talk about the holy place. There were three things in the holy place, okay? So there's this table of showbread. Other terminology is table of the bread of the presence. Same thing. So the priest would put 12 loaves of bread on this table every Sabbath, and they ate the old bread. And only the priests were allowed to eat it because it was holy as well. It was holy. You couldn't just take it out and give it to the people. That bread was holy. And so only the priest who had prepared themselves, consecrated, sanctified themselves, set themselves apart. Okay, here's your reference. Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Just see how I'm doing with time. 
I think I'm good. Then you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table, which is before the Lord. It's before the, the Holy of Holies. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. I want you to just, let's just stop right there. This is Leviticus 24, 8. Every Sabbath day, you shall set it before the Lord continually, everlasting they had to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it could still never completely pay for sin. So they had to do it over the next week and the next week. So I want you to see that over and over. Verse 9, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it, the bread, is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Another reference of uh, Exodus 25, 30, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. It had to be there all the time. Let's talk about the lampstand or the golden lampstand. So twice every day, morning and evening, the priest would have to go in and attend to the wick and replenish, it was pure beaten olive oil in the lamps. So they burned every night, and it gave light to the holy place. That's how they could see where they were going. Gave light. Uh, references, Leviticus 24, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they shall bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil, okay, so I want to stop right here. So I'm just going to tell you, let me see. No, I'm just going to keep reading. <laughs> keep going. Outside the veil, there's one article where there's some controversy about where it's located. So I want to, um, I'm going to make that clear to you. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. There it is. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually, over and over and over, and could never cleanse a conscience. We're going to see that in a, in a future verse. Never cleanse the guilt and the shame from impure thoughts, impure motives, sins committed in Ignorance. Um, I'm not going to read Exodus 27, but it's the same. It's the same thing. Okay. The golden altar of incense. Okay, let's see. There we go. All right. So the priests burned incense twice a day, morning and evening, every day. Okay. This stood right in front of the veil which separated the Holy of Holies. So the altar of incense, you see it's just to the east of the most holy place. Now, different scriptures look like they contradict each other about where this piece is located. One scripture will say it's 
So the veil separated, this doesn't have the veil label, but it separated the most holy place and the holy place. Some scriptures make it sound like this altar is in the holy place. Others make it sound like it's before the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm going to read you the scriptures. You're going to see this um, seemingly contradiction, but then I'm going to give you some explanations. You know, I was... I grew up in a church where there was one Easter, I think Brian was with me, where the, the preacher pointed out all the contradictions in the gospel stories. That built great faith that day. But as I've been in seminary, I've learned that you have to read like the book of John within the context of the book of John, because if I was writing the book of John to my niece who hasn't sat under my Bible studies for a long time, I would make it really clear. I would make it simple. If I was writing it to Brian, who hears my preaching all the time at home and in the car and in person, I could say it a different way. In the same way the Bible authors, some were writing to Greeks, some were writing to Jews, some were writing when they thought Jesus was getting ready to come, some were writing when Jesus hadn't come. So they all had a different point. So they might leave out a part. Or they might say, um, like when I travel and speak and share the gospel, I say what sin is. I don't say sin is um, the Hebrew word, whatever it is, which means to, um, to miss the mark, chata or something like that. I say sin is when we displease God with our thoughts or actions. I don't put it in Christianese. I say it's when you get angry. Or, you know, I I explain to them in terms they understand. And that's why in the Gospels, some parts are left out and some parts are added. And in some ways, they might say it this way because they had a reason. And there aren't contradictions. They just change the terminology to fit their audience. So... All that to say, this is going to look like there's a contradiction, but you can't just say, oh, it like, doesn't make sense, it's not true, there's all these contradictions. No. If there's a contradiction, it's because there's something we don't understand yet. If, we, if there's a contradiction, we're, we don't have all the revelation yet. It's on us. It's not on God. He doesn't lie. His word is true. It, he doesn't lie. If we say this, there's contradictions, it's our problem because we haven't come to a full knowledge of what it means. And still today, there are archaeological discoveries that are showing the word is true. (laughs) It's true. Okay, that was a mini sermonette. Exodus 3, 1 through 3. So we're going to read 1 through 3, 6 through 8, and 10. Verse 1, Exodus 30, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit. Its width a cubit. It shall be square. Its height shall be two cubits. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Okay, I'm just going to read verse 6. You shall put this altar in front of the veil. (laughs) Making them work so hard. Put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony where I shall meet you. So this had to be in the holy place because he says, Aaron shall burn fragrance on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. So Aaron could only go in the most holy place once a year. So he had to have access 
to this altar of incense. When uh, Exodus 30, verse 8, when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense. There's perpetual bread. There's perpetual incense. There's perpetual light over and over. So the Holman commentary just says again, the daily repetition of these things showed that they never resulted in access to God. They had to do it all the time. And they still didn't get to go in to be in God's presence only once a year, okay? Holman says the rituals of the old covenant were temporary, inadequate, and ineffective. And even, um, oh, I wish I had my, pink, I call it my pink Barbie Bible. The old covenant was insufficient. Some people will argue with you about that, but I can't remember the exact word that the NAS uses, but it was insufficient to take away sin. So the rituals of the old covenant were temporary, inadequate, and ineffective. The work of Christ was permanent, thorough, and sufficient to remove sin permanently. And Holman, this is the Holman commentary that I'm talking about. I like this. He says, do I have this on yours? It says, Christ's death was effective, eternal, and encouraging. Do you see that on your handout? I'll read it to you. It was effective because it cleansed the conscience. I'm sorry, I'm jostling. And removed sin permanently. It was eternal because it never needed repetition. It was encouraging because it provided hope to sinners struggling with guilt and weakness because of sin. The hope is Christ's payment is enough for my sin. If I blow it tonight, I can repent and be in God's presence tomorrow. That gives people hope. There's hope for us. I need hope. And I think y'all probably need hope too. Okay, so at the back of the holy place was this smaller chamber called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. I, I did the math. Imagine a cube that's 15 feet square. It's probably about the size of a large master bedroom if you think about a high ceiling. That was the size of the Holy of Holies. And this veil, which Bishop talked about last week, separated the two chambers. And I gave you the scriptures there that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple, which was the barrier between, the barrier preventing access to God, it was torn. Um, and you've got the references from the Gospels. And this simple, symbolized that we now have free and open access through Jesus to God's presence. Um, let's see. Yeah, I read that verse earlier. Since we have confidence, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, that we draw near. So in this Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was about the size of like an office desk, okay? The Ark of the Covenant, and there was a special area on top of it called the Mercy Seat. So we're going to jump back a little bit. Uh, you can turn with me to Hebrews 9.3. Y'all doing okay? It's a little dry. But there's access to God. <laughs> That's what I want you to get. 
Okay. So Hebrews 9, 3 through 4. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides, in which the golden jar holding the manna, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And then there was the mercy seat. I'm not going to read those scriptures um, for the sake of time, but God's cloud rested or moved from above the mercy seat. That is where his presence rested between the cherubim. God would meet with them there, and from between the cherubim, he would speak to them. Okay, so I want to um, explain this contradiction because the scriptures we just read right there in Hebrews 9, 3 through 4, says behind the second veil was the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense. Okay, so how can it be in the Holy of Holies if they have to reach it every day? So I did a little bit of research And it does, this is what one um, scholar, internet writer said, that the passage doesn't say that it was actually behind. It just says the Holy of Holies has a golden altar of incense. Because what they would have to do before entering the Holy of Holies was take some coals and use those to go into the Holy of Holies. So it belonged to the holy place. Part of it was used within the holy place. It says, the text literally reads in the Greek, behind the second veil was a room, in which, which is called the Holy of Holies, and it just says, having, and um, having a golden altar of incense. And this scholar said, this verb can be employed of the, in the sense of belonging to, close by and close association with. It was part of the Day of Atonement. So it had a veil, it had behind the veil the golden altar of incense. So I just wanted to point that out in case you're confused because it confused me. That was on ChristianCourier.com. So it has it, but it's not within it, okay? It's in proximity to, close association with, belonging to. Okay, so what's going on in this tabernacle? Hebrews 9 6 through 10. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, which is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. I love that. Committed in ignorance. Do y'all ever commit a sin because you just didn't know? Sins committed in ignorance. There's grace there. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way, okay, I don't fully understand this scripture, so if you ask me a question about it, I'll have to answer it next week. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they only relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body 
imposed until a time of reformation. So they had to do it over and over. The word conscience in the Greek is con, which means with, and science, clearly it says con, and science, which means knowledge. So it's a knowing. It means a co-knowledge of oneself. And I did a, I did a long study. I don't have time to go into it. Um, I did this about four years ago. I found every scripture in, let's see if I used Old Testament, in the New Testament that talks about conscience. And what I found was when life situate, when you look at the word deeply in the Greek, what you find is that when life, when there's an input from life, like, do I report this income on my taxes or not? There's an input. Then you compare it to the truth that you know, which is your knowledge base about this in, input. And your knowledge base will say, well, this is good or this is bad. You'll say, yes, you should do it because this is good or no, you shouldn't. <laughs> or you should, but you don't do it anyway. So it compares the input to the truth. If you follow your conscience, that's when you act morally right according to the truth, which is there's a place that says other income. You can put other income in that place. From that, you get peace and blessing. But if you choose to violate your conscience, which means you choose to do what you know is wrong, you override what is true, it results in shilt, <laughs> shilt, <laughs> Okay, shame, guilt, and consequences. Stop laughing at me. Shame, guilt, and consequences. That was a good one. She told me not to burp on the stage. She's like, don't burp again on the stage, Aunt Lisa. So what the blood of Jesus did was it cleansed our conscience. Because I've got, for a long time, I walked in the guilt of all of my hideous, behavior, shameful behavior. Some of it I will never tell, and I pray God never makes me tell. But my conscience has been cleansed, and I no longer feel the guilt and the shame from that. And thank God, a lot of the consequences have been removed as well. Sometimes there are still consequences. Sometimes, by God's grace, He'll heal you of something that he didn't have to. He'll heal you from the consequences of your sin. I've got proof in my medical records that I've been healed of the consequences of my sin. It's in the book. We did the test. Healed. Okay? So not only was my conscience cleansed, but my body was renewed as well. Okay? So I've given you some scriptures, I think, on your handout, um, the four scriptures in Hebrews that talk about conscience. Hebrews 9, 9, which again, I think we just read that. Yeah. Um, that these gifts and sacrifices cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 9, 14, I think this is when he's talking about the blood of animals and goats. 
how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience. Now I'm going to take just a short um, detour. When I studied this, turn to Hebrews 9.14. I just want you to see it. Hebrews 9.14. I know we're skipping around, but we're looking at earthly and heavenly. We're getting ready to get to heavenly tabernacle. But Hebrews 9.14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, so where it says who, he's talking about Christ Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. And when I read that and studied it, I wrote a blog post that was called, Even the Son of God Needed Help. He offered himself through the eternal spirit. He had the Holy Spirit there with him. You know, when you have to do a hard thing, you need Holy Spirit to help you. He's the comforter. He's the helper. Jesus had Holy Spirit. He offered himself through the eternal spirit without blemish. I believe just like we need help, Jesus was human too. He needed help. I think that's why he never sinned. He had that help. He used it. He was God. But that encouraged me. You, you may disagree with the way I, the take I took on it, but I believe even Jesus needed help to do that. And so in the same way, when we have to do hard things, we don't have to beat ourselves up because we need help. And the same Holy Spirit that showed up and enabled Jesus to surrender his life in a humiliating, shameful, painful, degrading way will help us do hard things. Cause, and that's an area where I struggle with anxiety is I feel like nobody's going to help me. Like, who, like when I'm overwhelmed with tasks, who's going to help me? But this week I've just been renewing my mind that I have a helper. Duh. I have a helper. The Holy Spirit. He's always there to help me. So God's been highlighting scriptures about my help. So I'm renewing my brain to overcome that lie that no one will help me. I have, I have a helper. Okay. So, okay. Uh, Hebrews 10.2 talks about conscience, the consciousness of sins. In Hebrews 10.22, which we've read a couple times already, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So we can have a clean conscience. We can have a pure body. We can draw near in full assurance of faith that God is big enough to clean us up of our sin. He's big enough. He can cleanse our conscience. He can make us pure and holy. When I married that man, I was pure and holy because God made me that way. I wore a white dress because I was made pure and holy. Amen? He made me that way. He cleans us up. Praise the Lord. Holman says, the cleansing offered by Old, Test Old Testament ceremonial cleansing was only temporary. The Old Testament sacrifices could not remove guilt and produce inward cleansing. But the shed blood of Christ affects the conscience. It removes moral guilt and gives forgiveness. It should be, and peace to sinners. Okay. 
So just briefly, um, on the Day of Atonement, that was the day that the Aaronic priest could enter into the, holy, the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. That's all in Leviticus 16. I'm not going to go there. But the high priest would enter with smoke from that altar of incense to shield his view of God's presence. That's what it said in the studies that I did. Sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. So access to God was only for, like, not just the, there are 12 tribes, not just the tribe of Levites, but only the descendants of one man, Aaron. Those were the only people that could enter the Holy of Holies. And, and only the Levites could enter the rest of it. So these ceremonies brought cleansing for a year, but no access to God. So in the Old Testament days, God met with some of his people in the earthly tabernacle. But in the New Testament days, God meets with his people in or through Christ. So under the old system, ordinary people like you and me, no access. Unless you're anybody from the son of Aaron in here, descendant of Aaron, yes, one, okay. If you were chosen high priest, Jason, he could have gone in, but the rest of us just had to wait outside. You're not a Levite, okay. All right. Okay. It's okay. So let's briefly talk about the pattern. So the earthly tabernacle was made from a pattern in heaven. And I'm going to give you some of those scriptures tonight. Holman says the earthly tabernacle was temporary. It belonged to this world. But Jesus ministered in heaven. Okay? So the earthly tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of the things in heaven. And it makes me wonder, like, how did God even dream up the heavenly tabernacle. Like, how did he come up with that? So, Wearsby says, as we talk about this, the principle of faith must apply to our relationship to this heavenly sanctuary. We, we've not seen it. We have never seen the sanctuary, yet we believe what the Bible tells us about it. We realize that God is not worshiped today in temples made with hands. So, let's see. I'm going to, okay, Acts 7, 49. Oh, no, 48. It says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool, footstool of my feet. So God does not dwell in houses made by human hands, but heaven is his throne. So let's talk about the gate. I'm going to give you some different scriptures. The gate of heaven, Genesis 28, 17. I'm going to go kind of fast for the sake of time. And the context was Jacob's dream of the ladder with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels were ascending and descending upon it. The Lord stood at the top, Genesis 28, 17, about Jacob. It says, he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. There's a gate in heaven. We hear all the jokes about it's pearly. 
St. Peter's there. There's a gate in heaven. Okay, so the laver or the place where the, the, the um, priests would wash. Revelation 7, 13 through 14 says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that we have an ability to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, some of these aren't exact, like, but I just want to give you the analogies. But it did say gate of heaven. It doesn't say there's a bronze labor. But we are washed, so I'm, I'm making associations here. Okay, but there is a door. Revelation 4.1, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. There's definitely lamps in heaven. Revelation 4.5, out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, I want you to know what those seven spirits of God are. So, turn with me quickly to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Let's see what I put on the handout, love. It's there. Okay. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Now, when I pray for Holy Spirit to fill me up, when I have lots of time to just sit and pray, surrender my will, God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble, you know, my laying my life down before the Lord prayer before I teach, I will say, Holy Spirit, fill me with all the gifts of your Spirit, all the fruit of the Spirit, and the seven spirits of God. That is what I, when I want to be filled up, I ask for it all. I want it all. The seven spirits of God, Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is talking about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord, that's a spirit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, and I put in parentheses, or I think I did, the spirit of so you'll know the spirit. Of, it says the spirit of wisdom and understanding, but I'm helping you see. The spirit of wisdom and, Lisa's parentheses, the spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel and, Lisa's parentheses, the spirit of strength. The spirit of knowledge and then, and the, my parentheses, spirit of the fear of the Lord. So it's the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. So there's a lamp in heaven burning, just like in the tabernacle, in the temple. Okay, the altar of incense, another couple scriptures from Revelation, Revelation 8, 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. On the golden altar, where was it? It says, which was before the throne. There's a golden altar in heaven before the throne with the prayers of our saints, the incense. Revelation 5, 8. Again, 
When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowl, <laughs> bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So that's the incense. The bread, you had, I had to search for this one a little bit. It's Psalm 105, verse 40. And the context is the Israelites were in the desert after they had come out of Egypt. They were hungry. They needed food. God gave them food. It says, they asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. The bread of heaven. That was manna, but it's called the bread of heaven. It could have just said manna. could have just said bread. could have just said supernatural bread. The bread of heaven. So we see bread in the tabernacle and in the temple. We see bread in heaven. Now, the veil, the way, Jesus. I get excited here. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God but through me. And then for the third time tonight, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So Jesus, the blood of Jesus broke through the veil. So Jesus is there. He pierced the veil. And then the mercy seat, you can compare that to God's throne. Revelation 4, 2, because that was where his presence rested in the tabernacle and in the temple, between the cherubim on the mercy seat. Revelation 4, 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So Wearsby just consolidates very concisely. The things in the earthly tabernacle were patterns of the things in the heavens. So do you understand now why I showed you Plato's cave? That when you go to Israel and you touch the, the western wall, was it the wailing wall, the western wall, that was just part. It was, it was symbolism. It was a copy and a shadow of what was going on in heaven, of what is in heaven, of what we will see in heaven. There, you could only access God's presence, like only certain people and on a certain day. But when we're in heaven, full access. Even now, full access. And we're not seeing him face to face, but there are times you sure can sense his presence. We have access. So these things were symbolism, not spiritual reality. Hebrews 9, 23 Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. He's talking about sacrifices, I believe. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Jesus was that better sacrifice. Okay, I've got six minutes. I'm going to go really fast about the what the tabernacle, tabernacle, I can't talk tonight. What it says about Jesus. So you go in through the gate. Jesus is the narrow gate. I don't have these references for you. I didn't know if I would get to it. Jesus is, he says, enter through the narrow gate. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. He's the way in. Does, is there a scripture in John? Does he say I'm the gate? I know he says I'm the door. John, I'm Now I'm one of those moments where I'm stuck. <laughs> Does he say I'm the gate or just I'm the door? 
There you go. He says, I'm the gate. Thank you. Okay, the bronze altar, Jesus was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. The table of showbread, I'm the bread of life. He was the bread. The golden lampstand, I'm the light of the world. And we're the light of the world. But he said, I'm the light of the world. Let's see. He says, I'm the door. Let's see. Okay. The altar of incense, maybe this pictures his intercession before God in heaven. Um, Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, is that the right reference? Therefore, he is able, I think it is, to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I think that's in Hebrews 11. I, I might have had that wrong. I'm doing this after coming back from a mission trip and driving to Charlotte and back. So I thank you for grace. Did you notice I didn't apologize, but I thanked you for your grace. I'm learning. I didn't physically hurt you by making an error. So I don't have to say I'm sorry because I did not physically hurt you or emotionally. So I can thank you for your grace and understanding. I'm growing in that. Okay. The veil, we've already covered that multiple times. So the veil, Jesus broke through. And the Ark of the Covenant, like, he's on the throne of grace. He says, come to me. So what we've seen tonight is we've seen the way the earthly tabernacle represented what's in heaven. We've seen how even Jesus can be found in the tabernacle. I went through that quickly, but he's the gate. He's the sacrifice. He washes us. He's the bread. He's the light. The intercession. We see it all. And you can, you can do those studies yourself if you want the scriptures. I can help you with that. But the most important thing, and we're going to build on this until next week, is that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go to God every day and say, God, I'm so sorry. God, I'm so sorry. God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me without all those things I did when I didn't know any better. Please forgive me, God. And even if you mess up, even if you cuss at somebody on the way to work all day long, you don't have to say, God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. Like for the next week. You can repent. If we can, what, 1 John 1, 7 and 8, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. It doesn't say confess continually, perpetually, morning and evening, over and over. We confess and he forgives. Now again, this isn't license. Don't take the grace and just say, well, I can get drunk tonight and confess in the morning and then do it again tomorrow night. It doesn't quite work that way. But if you mess up, there's grace. So we see we have access to God. Jesus, one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. I call that the one, four, four. You'll hear it next week. One sacrifice for, I call it all sin. It, scripture says for sin, I add all, for all time. Forever was sufficient for you. So God, I just thank you for grace. I thank you that we have access into your presence. I thank you that we've seen tonight that we don't have to do the over and over and over and over and over and over. We don't have to sacrifice over and over. We don't have to apologize over and over. We don't have to get saved over and over. But Jesus did everything. So Jesus, we just, we just say thank you. 
Thank you that we now have direct access into your presence by your blood. Because we've accepted you as our Savior, we can come boldly before you. Even when we haven't prayed all day long, we can just come right on in and say, I need your help right now. Because it's a throne of grace, we're invited to come boldly when we need your help. So, God, I just bless those who came tonight. God, I pray that you would continue to minister this word to them about the heavenly tabernacle and the earthly one, how Jesus is in the tabernacle. But let them go out knowing they have access to you directly all the time, every day. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Praise God. Thank you. That was good.